You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Thomas Frank is the author of Pity the Billionaire. He also writes for Harper's Magazine. Thank you for joining me, Thomas. You got it, Rick. As you write in your latest piece in the Easy Chair, Inauguration Day is upon us. Indeed, it is. One of the things I thought that was most interesting in your article that you pointed out was a statement that Biden made during the debate, which sounded right, but is really a mistake. And I think that gets to the heart of what you're talking about in your piece. Yes, yes. So it was during Joe Biden's debate with Paul Ryan. I forget how Ryan triggered the the comment, but at some point Joe Biden, uh, you know, said, "You you conservatives are always talking about the financial crisis, meaning the you know the problem with the banks in 2008 that triggered the recession that never seems to go away." And I thought he was going to talk about that because it's it's a you know it's a sort of great ready-made liberal talking point. You deregulated the banks and look what happened, but instead. He started talking about the deficit and what the various things that conservatives had done to run up the deficit, totally confusing the financial crisis, you know, the the subprime mortgage bubble, all that stuff, with the uh, the deficit, the federal deficit in D.C., which is, you know, not not totally uh, unrelated, but is a completely different subject, and they were just confused in Biden's mind, and the funny thing about that is. They seem to be confused in a lot of people's mind. This is just that somehow the federal deficit is responsible for the recession that, that never goes away, the, the, you know, the, the slump that we're in. Um, you see this mistake made all the time. People you know, are forever confusing these two things. Well, one of the things that I find most interesting, and you talk about this in your article, is this idea that austerity, these austerity measures to help relieve the deficit are going to have some positive effect on the ongoing recession uh, or depression, depending on which side of that divide you fall on. And and the what we're often told is that the, quote, common wisdom of economists and thinkers is that we need austerity to uh, help make the recession go away. But that's not common well, it, 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 well, Yeah, it's exactly, exactly the opposite. You know, this is what they're trying over in the European countries, Britain, France, Italy, Spain, Greece is a different is a different story. That's they they are doing austerity there, but their their problems go much deeper than that. But you take a country like Spain, which didn't really have problems, you know, ten years ago, which was booming. Mm-hmm. I used to go on vacation there, and it was it was the country was was growing by leaps and bounds. You know, the real estate market was booming. Turned out that was a complete bubble. And then it collapsed, and then, but but Spain wasn't running deficits. Uh, it was being very responsible in those terms, which you have to do in order to be part of the eurozone. That's one of the rules. When their economy collapsed, then they, uh, you know, they had to take all these austerity measures, which are basically forced on them by the uh, by the other European countries because you know because of the single currency thing over there. It's just driven them into a terrible situation where they have you know massive unemployment, and th- the same is true all over the place in Europe. Wherever they've done the austerity, wherever they've adopted the austerity approach, it's been a disaster. In some ways, the U.S. has been saved because uh, 
well, not in some ways, really directly, we we went the opposite way in 2008 and 2009. Barack Obama, remember when he was first elected, he wanted to do this big stimulus package. That was a really good idea. It turns out that was really smart. It's like one of the the few very, uh, really, really awesome things that he's done. Now, you know, I'm always so critical. I don't think he went far enough. He didn't do it exactly the right way, you know, all that sort of thing. But, But he did it. The European countries are going the other direction, and and that's why uh, the U.S. has recovered to the degree that it has. Well, the Europeans are, are, it's getting worse and worse and worse every year because they are, you know, the only party that's that's able to take up the slack when the private sector doesn't doesn't invest and doesn't spend. The only, I mean, on on paper, in reality, however you want to look at it, the only. institution that's that's available to go in the other direction is government they call it counter cyclical spending because you're going against the uh, the business cycle uh but the the funny thing is that conservatives republicans and even a lot of democrats think that's all wrong that government needs to when when times are hard government needs to tighten its belt it needs to make the business cycle you know do the exact same as business it make everything worse I, you know, I, I put it that way, and I make it sound like it's some kind of no-brainer that I've got it all figured out, but that's not exactly right. This is something that's the appeal of austerity is something that's very natural because it's what you do in your sort of in your personal life. When times are hard, you don't go out, get out the credit card, and and go <laughs> go shopping. You do the opposite. It's difficult for for people to understand why government should be just spending uh, hand over fist, but that is the actually the right thing for them to be doing. Well, you know, this comes down to an argument that I hear all the time, uh, which is that we would like people to run the government like it was a business. But the yes. government is not a business. It should not be run like a business. Oh, I, it should I be know. run like oh, a my government. Goodness. Well, just think, think about it in these terms. If the government was, was trying to make a profit, I mean, just think of all the, the sort of the crazy lunatic things they could do. They have they have the U.S. Army for God's sakes. You know, it, it's it would not be hard to make a profit when you write all the laws. You definitely don't want the government uh, run like a business. That that would and you don't want it run like a family either. That's the other the metaphor that you hear all the time. That because families have to tighten their belts, therefore government has to tighten its. And no, it's not it's not like that. The government is a, is a completely different institution. Now, I'd like you to talk a little bit about what we've seen is this approach where the two parties are supposed to come to some kind of centrist piece of legislation. Yes. But uh, the Democrats are already at the center, you say. <laughs> yes, that's right. Well, the grand bargain, you mm-hmm. know. This is this, this term that Barack Obama has used off and on since he was first elected, the grand bargain, which is what he wants to achieve uh, with the uh, with the Republicans, um, you know, you've got this Republican Party that has moved way to the right and has been, you know, holding up the process in this way and that, sabotage actually sabotaging the process, you know, in these in these various ways. And I mean, the political and you know me, Rick. I've been writing about conservatism for a long time, although I have sworn to not do it anymore. I'm just so sick of it. But this is really the story of our age is the growth of the right and the, you know, from the 1970s up to the present. And Barack Obama's great dream is to strike a deal with them, bring these people who are absolutely determined to never, the party of no, and get them to the table and get them to say yes to something. That's what he really, really, really wants to do. That's his ambition. 
if you go back and look at like what did he promise to do in his second term, what mm-hmm. were the, the the grand ideas that he was promoting for his second term? There there really weren't very many. The only one that you can really put your finger on is the grand bargain. You know, he said it in this uh, interview with the Des Moines newspaper. I'm going to achieve the grand bargain. And what he means by that is, you know, what the grand bargain would consist of is essentially this, this, uh, the Simpson Bowles. I don't know if you remember this, but a couple of years ago, President Obama got a retired Republican senator, Alan Simpson, and a retired guy from the Clinton administration, Erskine Bowles, and got them to sit down and come up with a package for overcoming the federal deficit, resolving the federal deficit, and they called the Simpson Bulls. And that's his idea of the grand bargain. That's what we need to be reaching for. In Washington, this is regarded as being just infinitely wise. Uh, the, and that's the funny thing about Barack Obama is, uh, is that he, for being such an outsider in so many ways, he really embodies the kind of uh, you know official Washington way of looking at things. You know, by which I mean sort of the Washington Post uh, consensus mode. One of the things that I think is is so interesting about all this is this idea of this kind of looming deficit. We've been hearing these messages since like the ni- mid 1970s. And basically, it yeah. reminds me, it's an old David Bowie song. We've got five years. That's all we've got. <laughs> and we've had those five years for about the last 40 years. Yeah. Well, it, go, it comes and goes. Mm-hmm. The, the, um, you remember, well, I don't know if you're old enough, but, but uh, Ronald Reagan, when he was running for president, you know, was, was hugely critical of Jimmy Carter for running big federal deficits. And then, of course, Reagan just put him to shame. You know, once Reagan got in, he he, he was that was the beginning of the of the, the the huge peacetime deficits was the Reagan years. And well, I mean, you had deficits obviously during Vietnam, but that's wartime. But uh, uh, Reagan, um, you know, and and what was his name? David David Stock Stockman, the uh, his his. Uh, the you know his budget director, a very interesting man, wrote a, a whole book about how this happened. You know how these people come to Washington denouncing big government uh, and deficit spending and proceed to, <laughs> you know to rack up the biggest deficit of all time or peacetime deficit of all time. How did that happen? Uh, you know it's a very interesting story. And then um, and then uh, Bill Clinton comes in and he's all responsible. And manages to bring the uh, bring it down to zero, whereupon the uh, George Bush gets in and runs it right back up. Remember, and Dick Cheney made his famous, his memorable remark: uh, "We know now that deficits don't matter." That's what the experience of the Reagan years taught us, because there was all of this panic, um, the, you know, the scaremongering during the Reagan years. I remember it myself. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was panicked. I mean, but I was a child, so of course. But the, you know, people talking about the, the size of these deficits, what it will take to pay it down, how it will hang over our heads and enslave future generations, and blah 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 blah—all the same talk. Um, and uh, that you're you're hearing it all again uh, today. But if there was ever a time to be running running deficits, it's right now. Right, because well, my take is is that when you talk about things that are going to happen in 2036 and 2044 and 2052 or whatever, I mean, if I tell you a story that I say, oh, this is going to happen in 2036, Thomas. Or here's a st- let me tell you a little story about what's going to happen in 2052. You're going to tell me quite reasonably, Rick, that's science fiction. 
that's right. And, and that's what we're living in is a, is a world of science fiction finances that are projections based on not what might reasonably happen in the future, but what's happening right now. We yeah, have no right. idea what's going to happen in the future. I know. And, and um, I mean, look, they will have to deal with the deficit someday, but, but, but not right now. The, 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 you want to run a deficit when the situation is like it is right now, and the economy just will not get going. And by the way, and it goes on; it continues. You know, the the slump just uh, you know all the recent data shows that the economy is not growing, uh, basically not growing at all. It, 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 they should be running a much larger deficit. They should be spending money on all kinds of, of crazy things. You know, just pull out the you know history of the 1930s and start following. You know, imitating a lot of the things that the Roosevelt administration did, you know, hire people to shovel snow, hire people to rake leaves, you know. <laughs> hire people to write blogs. <laughs> yeah, yes. Well, I, I have my my favorite ideas. I, I wrote sort of a, a Harper's article just proposing all of these different things that they should do. And my favorite one was send an army of researchers into the libraries of America to scan old newspapers and old magazines and make them all available on the Internet for free. Thomas, I'd like you to tell me about this book that you read, Fool Me Twice. Oh, yes. So this is, uh, uh, you know, the, what happened was, the, the origin of this article was I was trying to figure out what, what to look forward to in Barack Obama's second term. And there were remarkably few he made remarkably few public statements about what he was going to do in his second term. The president himself said almost nothing. The closest that he came, as I, as I mentioned earlier, was to talk about the grand bargain. The only place that I could find people saying that they expected him to, you know, to launch himself on this sort of great liberal program was on the extreme right. These are, you know, the people who wrote the book, The Manchurian President. Uh, wrote this book called Fool Me Twice about all the dreadful, terrible things that Barack Obama was going to do in his second term. And they were things like he was go he's going to launch a giant, uh, you know, a giant public works agency, ironically, j like what I just recommended that he do. These are the only people out there that I know of who, who actually think Barack Obama is going to do this. <laughs> <laughs> that he's going to do a big deficit spending campaign. It's a conspiracy theory. It's, a, con it's a conspiracy theory about something that seems perfect. Something that would be reasonable. awesome if he would do it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's something we would really like to have happen. Yeah. And something that also, too, as you point out, would be this is a, a fairly that would be a fairly centrist and reasonable response to this, especially a financially reasonable response. It actually would be reasonable. It would, you know, you would solve the unemployment problem almost immediately. You know, you'd pump a whole lot of money into the economy in the way in a way that that mattered. Uh, you know, it would, it would completely change the picture, and it would do it very rapidly. But uh, it's it's obviously not on the table. Barack Obama doesn't want to do that. Everything we know uh, indicates that he wants to seek the grand bargain, which is to cut government spending, not to increase it, not to, not to uh, you know, send people out to do public works all over the country. Nope, that's only the conspiracy theorists believe that. Uh, and it, what, not so long ago, it might have been the conspiracy theorists who would be saying that the, uh, there was some evil plan to cut Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and deprive the entire middle and lower class of any kind of comfort or ability yes. to well, that, live through Well, that actually could well happen. I think Social Security and Medicare probably will go on the table. 
that's I, I think that's that will be an element of the grand bargain when we finally get it. One thing that that I didn't expect that he is doing. I mean, everything has changed since the election. Is the uh, is the gun control measures, which were announced uh, yesterday, Rick, and that was something that he never mentioned in his first term. And uh, it came up during the debates. This was this is actually an interesting point because it was the one issue where Mitt Romney could have, had he wanted to, could have outflanked Barack Obama on the left. Uh, because when Mitt Romney was governor of Massachusetts, he actually put uh, you know some pretty strict gun control laws into effect. He chose not to, of course. He he went the opposite direction and 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 said, "Oh, I, you know, I never did that, and I would never, <laughs> you know, and denied everything." You know how he how he was, which was really disheartening to see. But uh, Barack Obama is in his first term was not good on gun control. Never talked about it. Never did anything about it. Showed no interest in taking on the NRA. As you know, they're one of the biggest, most powerful lobbies. Here in D.C., and he didn't want anything to, you know, he did not want to tangle with them. But now he is, and that's that's something that uh, nobody saw coming. As a writer and an observer of uh, politics, do you think that he can succeed in this? There's been, at first it seemed obvious he was going to, and now more and more we're hearing that he's not. Uh, on gun control or on uh, grand bargain? On gun control. No, he will not succeed on gun control. The the NRA really controls uh, because it, whatever whatever happens has to has to pass the House of Representatives, and uh, the the NRA really controls um, you know a lot of votes. I mean the the, the Republicans are uh, really afraid of the NRA. And um, they will not cross that group. And that's there's a lot of Democrats too. I find it really interesting that we it seems imp- that it's going to be impossible to pass an assault gun weapons ban when we had passed one before. That's right. But it was Bill Clinton got it passed. I imagine in that uh, brief period, I, I don't re- really I don't remember the particulars anymore. But they did the Democrats did have both houses of Congress for a while back then. There also used to be. I mean, the NRA wasn't as powerful then as it is now. Um, I mean, they've always been big and they've always been, you know, powerful. But but uh, their power has grown and grown and grown. By the way, if you ever come out to Washington, they have this enormous headquarters out in Northern Virginia. You drive by it on your way uh, into town on one of the highways. I forget which one. This huge building. I mean, it's much more imposing than any other uh, lobbyist building that I know of. And it's famous here in D.C. for it has a uh, shooting range in the basement. And all of all of the sort of my my conservative friends like to go there and shoot guns in the basement. Now, uh, one of the things that I think that we're seeing a lot of evidence in of is uh, the phenomena that you talked about in the Wrecking Crew, the idea of defunding the government, uh, then saying, "Wow, it doesn't work." Yeah. We ought to just defund it even further. And I yeah. think that that phenomena is proving to be a, that's a very effective uh, tactic for for the Republicans and their conservatives to take. Yes, yes. And I know you've got a specific example in mind. There was one that was just like, uh, that was just punching me in the nose the other day. And now I've forgotten what it was. Um, but it, I mean, a perfect example of this of where, where some some arm of government had been completely defunded by the right, and then the right was claiming that because it had failed, that, you know, this is just because government always fails, you know, not because they had 
done everything they they're done everything in their power, you know, to sabotage. It. Uh, and I, I don't remember now what particular agency it was, but it was uh, it was it was something just awful. Well, I think that this is a, a, a an, an effective tactic for them. Now, uh, let's talk a little bit about the uh, debt ceiling because this is a. Uh, our next chance to shoot ourselves in the foot. And it seems like we've got every gun that the NRA can muster aimed at every foot in Washington. Yes, that's right. That's right. I mean, they're, they're, I, I, I wonder after the, you know, in 2011, when they, when they tried it last time to use the debt ceiling, which is in, in the past has always just been a rubber stamp, an occasion for, you know, rubber stamp, you know, Congress, the Congress uh, talks about it and they, and they, and they moan about it and they, you know, so oh, how awful it is that we have to do this again and then they do it. Right. But now the, uh, the new Republican majority, not new, been around for uh, three years now has uh, decided that they're going to actually use this opportunity you know, to force a showdown and to demand that the other side give them everything that they want. That was very frightening when they when they tried that in 2011, because if they were actually to succeed with what they say they want to do, it would be catastrophic, you know, not just for America, but for every every country, you know. Everybody depends on the full faith and credit of the U.S. government and on the, you know, the, the, the fact that we honor our, our debts and pay the interest on our bonds and all of that sort of thing. And so, the, you know, to, to, to pull a stunt like that would be cataclysmic. And I remember when this was happening. You know why? And I remember it really vividly because there was this big anti or supposed to be big anti-abortion protest in Germantown, Maryland, which is uh, here in the same county. It's in suburban Washington, D.C., and I, and I was going up there to cover it every day because it was a lot of the same people that had been involved in protesting in Kansas, and they had come out here. And to cut to the chase, they didn't, it was not a very successful protest. In fact, it was the opposite of, it was a ridiculous protest. I would be meeting with these anti-abortion leaders, you know, and talking to them, and they could not keep their minds on what they were actually here to protest. They kept talking about the debt ceiling showdown. They, they, you know, they couldn't believe, they thought it was so scary. Cause this was all going on in the background. And uh, one of them, I remember, told me how he had uh, he'd put everything he owned into gold, you know, and that was because this was so frightening to him. And that was the climate then. And that's I here's, here's why I bring all that up. I can't imagine that they want to try that again. That was that was a really scary, scary moment. I can't imagine that the Republican Congress thinks that it's a good idea to do that again. One of the things you just said, you said an interesting phrase, and this made me think of something. You said the new Republican majority. Yeah. Now, but from what I've seen, uh, this Republican majority that is to exert the influence of the farthest extremes of the people you talk about, the John Birch Society. Yeah. I mean, just the really, the people that when I was a kid, I used to go by the John Birch Society and look in their store, and I just thought it scared the hell out of me because it was so crazy. Yeah. But and, that's the world we're in, we live in now, Rick. But I, what's interesting is that not I don't think all the Republicans out there are that crazy, but there's like a core, a radioactive core who are the true believers, yeah. and they put the fear of a primary challenge into everybody else. If you do not uh, behave like us, we will direct our radioactive rays and, and, uh -huh. and create a Godzilla-like monster in your home district that will rise and destroy your power. Well, yes, that's part of it. You know, especially that's part of it in a tactical sense, but that's not 
we're talking about a long-term phenomenon here. This is something that's been going on for decades, and um, it's more than just the, the the primary threat. I mean, the whole right-wing movement culture. I mean, but Rick, I've been writing about this for golly, twelve years now. Uh, you know, and uh, it, I, I, I'm just—I'm sorry to say this—I'm—I'm I'm tired of it. You know, I'm I, as a as a as a subject for you know, it, it fascinated me at first. Okay, it fascinated me in the early you know 2000s, late 90s, 2000s. You know, because I had been a, a conservative once, and because it was so counterintuitive and so strange you know because because this is this is these are ideas that we think of as fringe ideas how could they possibly be enjoying the success that they are and you know i've wrestled with it and gone around and around and around with it and um can i just uh, let me just uh, cut this conversation really short by saying that if the Democrats wanted, they could beat these guys tomorrow, and they could end conservatism as, uh, or this kind of crazy conservatism as a, as a force in in this country. But they're not interested in that. Um, I mean, Barack Obama had the perfect opportunity in 2008, 2009, 2010. And he did not only did he not do it; it was it's going the other direction. You know, um, the, instead of recovering, this is what pity the billionaire is about. Instead of recovering in 2010. You know, the conservative movement should have been finished. It should have gone the way of Herbert Hoover. You know, they should have been. What happened? The financial crisis and the recession should have been the end of them. You know, because it can be directly attributed to their policies. Uh, but Barack Obama wasn't interested in that kind of fight. He always no. He wants the grand bargain. You know, he, nobody, nobody uh, running the Democratic Party wants to pick that sort of fight. Um, they're not interested in that. Their heart's not there. Uh, you know, they, and so I, I, after a certain point, I'm just I'm sick of writing about it. I'm sick of talking about it. I'm sick of telling them what's going on out in, out in the country. They don't listen. They don't care. I mean, they listen to the extent that they like to deplore it, you know, and talk about how horrible it is. But they're not interested in actually confronting uh, this stuff. And it's going to – they also think it's going to peter out on its own. Um, you know, and it's demographically determined, and one of these days it'll 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 start to disappear, and we don't have to worry about it. You know, because the Democrats can win fifty percent plus one, and so therefore, who cares? But I mean, this is something that we're going to be living with for a long, long time. We already have. They've been they've they've been around for thirty years now. It's really depressing. Victory won't be so sweet in a radioactive wasteland. So. <laughs> All right, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, one of the things I must say is that the, your piece in the Easy Chair, uh, Second Chance, is a beautifully written piece of prose. It's it it's really nice, and I'd like you to just talk about. You were just were indeed just talking about um, not wanting to write about this, but I think you do so so well and so eloquently. So, talk a little bit about crafting this piece. Um, looking at the landscape around you and finding a voice that is eloquent and powerful without being strident and annoying. Oh, well, that's, that is really nice of you. I mean, but that's also your opinion. You know, a lot of people think I am strident and annoying. <laughs> I, but uh, look, I, I work really, really, really hard on the prose. Uh, to some degree, that's, well, 
I think that is for me just as important as as what I say is is you know that you want to have something that's that's a pleasure to read. Um, and and also, it, it, when you read it, you'll notice that it's all written so that it could be read aloud. Mm-hmm. That's how I that's how I that's how I do these things. Everything is designed to be read out loud. Um, uh, how else do I do it? Do I do it? I uh, uh, gosh, Rick, that's something that's really hard to. Do you read it aloud as you write it? Uh, in, in my head, yeah. I don't read it. Loud, no, I, I read it in my head. But th- that all goes back to my um, days in in high school debate. Everything, is, you know, this is really, really, really formative period for me in the early '80s. I was in high school debate, and it and and everything that you wrote, you know, had to be read out loud. And um, I would write all our arguments in advance, in, <laughs> complete with all the you know rhetorical flourishes, <laughs> you know. So that you could just read it straight off the straight off the, the sheet of paper, and uh, and I, I guess I just still do that. I, I still think of it that way. It's um, you know, it's always something to, that 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 could be that could be heard. Well, having having faced uh, the conservative onslaught and uh, turned away from the um, mushroom cloud, and uh, where do you see your writing going next? Uh, well, let's see. I'll I'll give you a preview. So the next Harper's column is about the one that's going to be on the newsstand. It should be on the newsstand uh, in a couple of days. Actually, is about um, Spielberg's Lincoln movie mm-hmm. and the book that it's supposedly based on, which is Doris Kearns Goodwin's Team of Rivals. Uh, and this is a book that has annoyed me three separate times over the course of the last few years. So where I see myself going, and then the the um, essay after that, which I'm is sitting on my desk right now, and I'm writing it as we speak, is about uh, violence in movies. And um, where I see myself going is, is, is writing about culture again. This is where I started my career, was writing about culture. And then I, at some point in my, in my life, I got interested in the business culture, you know, um, management theory and stuff like that. You know, not interested in it in the sense that I want to manage a large workforce, but interested in it as, as rhetoric. And then uh, I went from there to, you know, politics, uh, because you, 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 you very quickly discover that, that um, you know, management theory and political theory are very closely, uh, you know, they're very close to each other. But I think it's time to start um, walking it back and walking away from from the politics. Um, And, you know, you said something interesting. Politics, there's a lot of bad writing in political analysis. I mean, I read the New York Times and the Washington Post every day, and their op-ed pages have become, this is a a long-term problem for me, but the writing is so bad. Do you remember when I used to write for the Wall Street Journal, Rick? Yeah, and that, those I, were great. I, the, but the same thing there. I, I would really work hard on those columns, those newspaper columns, and mm-hmm. that's tough because you know you're you're turning it in. You write it the day before. You know you don't get a long lead time like you do in magazine journalism, and um, it was it was it was very hard. But I was really proud of the uh, of how polished those articles were, and it's it's made me. Uh, I guess it's ruined me forever. Uh, for you know the op-ed pages of your major newspapers, I just can't stand reading other people's op-eds. I, you know, I, I, everything they do wrong, I want to write them. You know, call them on the phone and tell them. You know, like Paul Krugman, stop starting sentences with the word "for." Stop doing it, please. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, oh, they're such bad writers. It's uh, 
it's it's funny how you know because we think of politics or in the old days it used to be a branch of letters but you look at a guy like Abraham Lincoln wonderful writer you know but that's uh, or you know all the great speeches of decades past but all of that seems to have been seems to be lost now because you got all these people in the Senate and the House who can't you know can't talk their way out of a paper bag I mean I've even seen like John Boehner he's the Speaker of the House of Representatives the man is is one of the worst orators ever. <laughs> you'd think he'd be he'd be good at it. Oh, he's he's dreadful. They're all, they're all dreadful. There's very few of them that are any good at all. Yeah, they seem more like they're shooting for uh, used car salesmen. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, I mean, there's a the reason United that States nobody Senate. watches. They don't watch each other in the in this, the House and the Senate. If you ever go and sit in the in the visitors gallery. There's only like one or two of them on the floor at a time. The rest of them aren't even paying attention. I've been speaking with Thomas Frank. His new book is A Pity the Billionaire. You need spare no pity for Thomas Frank. (laughs) Thank you for joining me, Thomas. Rick, it's always a pleasure to do this. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.